At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Please note that this episode contains discussions of sexual violence that some listeners may find distressing. A Playlist Original Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy, you know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. And I'm Liv. And today on the podcast, we're joined by Timothy Sawa. Timothy is a journalist and producer of CBC's The Fifth Estate. He also has a new podcast about his investigation into Peter Nygaard called Evil by Design. Evil by Design tells the story of the investigation of Peter Nygaard, Winnipegger, and Canadian fashion designer. Over 80 women have accused Nygaard of sexual assault and sex trafficking over several decades. Nygaard denies all the allegations against him. Hi, Timothy. Thanks for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. So I actually did grow up in Winnipeg and was very familiar with Peter Nygaard from a very young age. My, my mom shopped at Nygaard. Um, but for those people who don't know, can you give us a little background as to who Peter Nygaard is? Yeah, I mean, he's a name that you may or may not recognize. I mean, his, his clothing is mostly sold at um, strip malls and, you know, suburb, suburban kind of settings. Um, and places like Costco and uh, Walmart, sort of the larger big box stores, I should say used to be sold because you can't buy it anymore. Um, but he is, uh, he's from Finland originally. Uh, he moved to Canada as a young boy um, and he entered the business world as a young person um, and the fashion industry. And he just um, steamrolled his way through the fashion industry. Like it wasn't long before he was one of the biggest um, clothing manufacturers um, in Winnipeg, certainly, and among the biggest in Canada. Um, and he just grew his empire. It grew and grew and grew till it was close to worth to close to a billion dollars. Um, and he, you know, he had his administrative headquarters in Winnipeg, but he had uh, his marketing headquarters in Toronto. He has um, he has a world headquarters in New York and Times Square. Um, you know, facilities around the world. Um, homes, you know, in California, a big, huge estate in the Bahamas, uh, you know, a place outside of Winnipeg. So he really, really did grow to be a very large person in the clothing industry. Um, and he served a really sort of niche segment of the population. Um, and he did very, very well at that. And when you mean niche segment of the population, um, who is he, who is he serving? There's this kind of famous quote from him where he said, he said, when I got into this business, I was told you're not in this business if you're not serving the market that's under 35, I think it was. And he said, I thought to myself, if everybody's going after this market of under 35 years old, then nobody's going after the over 35 year old market. So that's where I'm going to go. And that's what he did. He went to a more mature kind of market um, and uh, did very, very, very well at that. He made sort of, you know, not high fashion, it was low, lower cost kind of fashion, comfortable fashion. Um, and he found himself a niche that made him a lot of money. 
I believe you said you started investigating this story in 2009. Um, can you tell us how you started working on this story? Sure. I mean, I was living in Winnipeg at the time. I'm not from there, but I lived there for a decade and I had been living there for a number of years at that point. And there was, there was always rumblings. Like if you lived in Winnipeg, Olivia, you said you lived there. I'm sure you heard things. I mean, if you knew people and you were, you know, you talked to people, it didn't, you didn't have to go very far before you bumped into someone who had some kind of involvement with him, oftentimes negative, oftentimes involving women. And it was just, you know, there was nothing really specific that I ever heard, at least in those early days, except that there were bad experiences with him and, and not a lot of detail, but there was enough kind of going around that he was on the radar. Um, and then, of course, he was quite famous for his, uh, his home in the Bahamas, which, you know, was often, you'd see it in magazines and stuff. And then, if you lived in Winnipeg, you also couldn't miss the fact that he was, you'd see him with the mayor, you'd see him with the premier, you'd see him at a clothing opening with, you know, big business people all around him. So he was a big personality in Winnipeg, and you really couldn't miss him. Um, but then there were the rumors. And then at one point, um, we got a phone call. I got a phone call from someone, a connection, friend of a friend who said, look, I'm working for Peter Nygaard right now. Um, I've got information. I want to talk to you. And we met and it, it went from there. Taking a step back to go to the Bahamas before we get into the Winnipeg allegations, um, what was interesting, so this is a story about sexual abuse, political corruption, corporate corruption, but it also has um, an environmental angle to it. Um, so can you tell us about the role uh, played by the Bohemian environmental activists in actually pushing back against um, Peter Nygaard's attempts to illegally expand his property by dredging along the beach and, and how that kind of um, led to some of these allegations being revealed ultimately? Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of kind of interesting things all happening at the same time when you look back at his story. At the same time that we started to investigate him, he, things were just heating up with an environmental fight in the Bahamas. Um, he had a neighbor, a very wealthy neighbor uh, by the name of Louis Bacon, even more wealthy than him, and they were side by side. And um, Nygaard wanted bigger beaches. He wanted more beachfront. He has this incredible property that's the tip. It's actually the western tip of the island. And so it's surrounded on, on three sides by water and it is like a property like you wouldn't believe, but it wasn't enough. He wanted more beachfront. He wanted more space for his parties. He wanted more space for his beach volleyball. And so he was, what he was accused of at the time was digging up sand from the seabed further off of his property and kind of tossing it onto his property and building it and building it. And he, um, forget the figures now, but he, I think it was something by 30%, he expanded the size of his property. It was significant. He significantly enlarged his property. And this uh, was upsetting to his neighbors and particularly Lewis Bacon um, and other environmentally minded people in the Bahamas saw this happening. They were upset. He had no permits. He had no permission. And um, what started was this giant legal feud in the Bahamas trying to stop him from digging up his beaches. But of course he has you know, almost limitless resources himself. So it just became this big, huge legal fight in the Bahamas that went back and forth. And it, it, you know, all kinds of people came on board. There were some pretty serious environmental people who came on board in the Bahamas to really challenge him. Um, and then this wealthy neighbor of his was a big part of funding this fight against him. Um, and eventually this environmental fight led to a situation where they, they won. They had some major wins against him. 
um, at the same time that the political situation was changing in the Bahamas. And the people in the Bahamas kind of saw him as this person who was untouchable because he had these relationships with the police and politicians. But when this environmental group was making headway and there was some fines levied against him and some charges that eventually were made against him, the people in the Bahamas realized, oh, maybe this person isn't untouchable. Maybe, maybe we can do something about these other things that are happening. And uh, some young women and one, one woman in particular reached out to the group that were fighting him on the environmental front and said, you know, you guys don't know the half of it. There's a lot more going on behind those gates. And, you know, I see that I can reach out to you guys because you're willing to take them on. And she did that. And that led to a cascade of events um, from there. You mentioned Lewis Bacon, who, of course, is Nygaard's uh, billionaire neighbor, uh, billionaire neighbor um, and sworn enemy, I suppose, um, between the two of them. Can you tell us a little bit more about the role that Bacon has been maybe given by the Nygaard camp in all this? Yeah, I mean, Bacon has become the, the sort of the center point of, of Nygaard's defense. Every time someone makes an, an accusation against him, his response has been, oh, that's, that's made up. That's been paid for by Lewis Bacon. That's been, you know, th those are lies funded by Lewis Bacon. Lewis Bacon is on a campaign to destroy me and my business. And so that's why everything, anytime anybody says anything negative about me, it's because Lewis Bacon made it happen. And so he became, he became you know, his, his defense essentially in, in, as this thing played out in the Bahamas. And as you say, you know, what was happening behind the, the doors of the key um, started and, and at the center of it was these lavish pamper parties um, at his property. And so can you tell us about these parties and um, what they entailed and how they were used as a recruiting tool for, um, for girls in the Bahamas? Absolutely. I mean, this is something we go into a lot of detail in an evil by design and, and in our reporting going back over the years. Um, we've been able to show with, with kind of video and by the interviews that we've done, what happens. Um, so he would hold these parties, uh, oftentimes on Sundays, they were called pamper parties. And uh, he would invite young women from the island, there was a guest list, and uh, his staff would invite people to come. And they were sold as this opportunity to come and relax, come to this beautiful place on the island. You can get a massage or a pedicure and have a drink and have a nice meal and, you know, play some volleyball on the beach. Um, and who wouldn't want that? I mean, these, these, you know, this place is incredible. This is like, you know, he has the nicest place among the group of people who have the nicest places in the world. Like these are billionaires who live behind these in this gated area where he lives. And in the Bahamas, there's a lot of poverty and a lot of people, like there's a few, big separation between people who have a lot and, and those who have very little. You don't have to go very far to see what the poverty is like in the Bahamas. So these young women would get these invitation to go from a place where they may not have had electricity because they couldn't pay for the electricity bill or they lived in a one and two, two room little shack to go to this place on the other side of the island where the rich and famous and wealthy lived. And that's where these parties took place. But what we now know is that these parties were used as a hunting ground, essentially, for him to find his next victims. And that's, that's we hear story after story after story about how young women were preyed upon in these parties, how he would, you know, there was alcohol. We now know he was drugging people at these parties. He would, he would choose, we were told, that choices would be made or people would be told, um, his staff, 
wouldn't wouldn't were were drugging people on its you know and um and and then they would disappear these girls would disappear up to up to away from the party and this is where the assaults would happen um if you can talk about some of the commonalities that you've heard from these alleged victims who were, um, you know, recruited to the pamper parties and then maybe selected while they were there. Can you speak in some of the commonalities in their experiences? Mm -hmm, for sure. And I'm just going to every once in a while remind, you know, myself and everybody that he is denying these allegations. So, I mean, we have a lot of evidence. We've uncovered a lot of evidence and we've shown a lot of evidence that the, these things are true. But his point of view is still that he denies this and he continues to deny it. But I can tell you more about what, you know, we've discovered along that. I mean, we know that they were young um, in most cases, uh, in some cases, very young, as young as 14 years old, in some cases. Um, we know that they were, you know, at these parties in the Bahamas, they were local, they were from the Bahamas in most cases. They came from impoverished backgrounds um, in many cases. and. Um, and his recruiters, there were people who worked for him who would go out to these impoverished neighborhoods and actually look for people to, to kind of bring to these parties. So they were, they were targeted. Um, they were, you know, there was a deliberate kind of playbook about who to invite to these parties and who could be potential victims uh, for him. So that was, those were, that was the profile of the kind of person who, who was being invited to these parties and who would potentially be victimized. And you mentioned um, kind of in passing in, in the podcast that there is a number of famous guests who also attended these pamper parties. Among them was um, the now infamous Prince Andrew. And I personally feel like he's not, you know, been getting a lot of coverage um, in like in regards to his involvement um, or alleged involvement in this. And so I'm curious um, what, what you think his alleged involvement was and, and if there we should be talking about it more. Mm hmm. I mean, we don't know very much. The truth is we don't know very much <clears throat> about his visit. We know he was there. We've seen photographs of him. His family is with him while he's there. Um, and that's about all we know. I mean, <clears throat> it's hard to know, you know, to, what, what that visit involved. And it's also hard to say because a lot of famous people would go to his place, even whether he was there or not. Like, because his home was this, was well known for being this incredible place to visit. Like, it's, it's something like you've never seen I um, mean, Oprah went there, uh, all kinds of people went to see his place. And sometimes he wasn't even there. So it is, it is hard to draw too many conclusions by who visited without kind of knowing more context. And we just don't know a whole lot about Prince Andrew's visit beyond the fact that he was there. You touched on this a little bit, um, talking about how his recruiters would seek out um, women and girls specifically from impoverished neighborhoods. Um, maybe I'm asking you to speculate too much, but do you think there's evidence that that this was this was calculated, that he was kind of drawing on these imbalances of power, that he relied on this in some way to do what he was doing? I think there's no doubt. I think there's absolutely no doubt that was, I mean, you only have to look at the facts. You only have to look at who the Jane Doe's are, um, who are, you know, from the Bahamas. We know their backgrounds. We know their, you know, their situations in many cases. Um, so I think it's, I think that's a fair assessment to make that this was, this was calculated. This was intentional, um, that these women were focused on and, and sought out intentionally because, you know, they didn't have the resources necessarily to, to fight back afterwards, or, um, you know, they could be more easily intimidated 
I mean, because at these parties, also you have to realize there would be politicians and there would be police officers. And so these young women would see this. They would say, this is a guy who's, I mean, they told us this. This is a guy who they saw connected to the most powerful people on their island. And they thought, how, how can I fight back against this? I'm, you know, from this small impoverished area of the Bahamas. I don't have power like the rest of these people. And I, I think that was absolutely intentional. You, you've talked about this a little bit, but can you um, tell us a little bit more about how he wielded power in terms of um, authorities in the Bahamas with respect to both politicians? Um, is it Perry Christie, I believe he had a, a close relationship with, as well as with the police? How did he wield that power? He did. I mean, we, we've spoken to a number of people who've told us um, how they, they were, like his staff, we've spoken to his staff members or former staff members who say they themselves passed along money and cash to police officers and politicians on numerous occasions. Um, so we know this was happening. We know from multiple witnesses that police officers would come to the gate at this place and get their envelopes of cash on a, on a regular basis. We know that they were attending these parties and they were guests of these parties. This, is, this has been confirmed by a number of sources. And we also know he has a longstanding relationship with Perry Christie, as you mentioned, who's the former prime minister of the Bahamas. Um, so we've seen from the video footage that we've obtained that, that they're um, spending time together. They went on a trip to Las Vegas together. We can see Perry Christie in, in Nygaard's suite meeting his, the women that would travel with Nygaard. Um, we see Perry Christie in a video at Nygaard's wedding in Winnipeg giving a speech. So there was pretty clearly a very close relationship between these two. And Perry Christie was for a good period of time the most powerful person in the Bahamas. And uh, Peter Nygaard has not shied away from advertising the fact that he donated millions of dollars to Barry Christie's election campaigns. So, I mean, with a friend like that in a small place like the Bahamas, that gives you a lot of power. But of course, um, as we spoke about before, the abuse was not limited to the Bahamas. There is also a number of Canadian women who come forward in alleged abuse in Winnipeg, um, as you alluded to before. Um, so, you know, you spent uh, some time talking in the podcast about the cultural difference between cultural differences between the Bahamas and Canada. But what ultimately struck me was that Canada had a lot of similar hurdles uh, to overcome in, in addressing the allegations. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what went on in Winnipeg? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really easy to say, you know, all, all of that happened in the Bahamas. And the Bahamas is a place that is we know is corrupt. The police forces are corrupt. We know there's a lot. But it's not actually not fair to kind of put it all there because in the 70s and 80s in, in Winnipeg, we know now from speaking to the women we've spoken to that he was raping and assaulting young women then and there in Winnipeg. Um, we know, I mean, there's one, one case where um, it was the daughter of someone who worked in the police service in Winnipeg that it happened to, she says. So this idea that no one knew or no one could have known or should have known in Winnipeg, in my opinion, is just not the case. Um, on the other hand, it also was an environment, I think, much different than today, sadly, where women didn't feel the same kind of, uh, you know, ability to come forward. Um, there was a woman in the 1980s who did, uh, who was involved with a rape charge. Um, and then at the last minute, she was called to the stand and didn't want to testify and it, and it fell apart. So there was a, it came close to some accountability in the in 1980, but it, it didn't happen. We don't know why. We just know that at the last minute, she chose not to testify. Um, 
but we know it was happening. We know it was definitely happening. And we spoke to a woman who was 17 years old, who he, you know, he took to his, his business and he assaulted another woman who I think she was in her early 20s and she came for a modeling job and he assaulted her. And those are the first two, two women to come forward publicly and share their experiences and, and put their names to what happened more recently. And they were a big part of, you know, the, the accountability really picking up steam against him. They were very brave. Certainly. Um, one of the more fascinating moments of the podcast is when you, for, for me at least, is when you spoke to Kai, who was one of Nygaard's sons. Um, were you surprised that Kai agreed to speak to you on the podcast? Yeah, I mean, Kai is someone who anybody who's followed the story kind of knows who Kai is. He was, <clears throat> you know, the, the son, Nygaard's, one of his eldest sons. I don't think the eldest, but one of the oldest. But he was the person who was seemed to be most likely to take over the business. He was involved with the business. He was known, you know, in the industry. Um, and I'd always read about him and I'd heard about him. And yeah, I was surprised when he came forward and wanted to talk. Um, I mean, no one, you know, was closer to this than his son for some, for some parts. Other, in other ways, his son wasn't close, um, but there were times when, you know, Kai was around. Um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a revealing kind of interview, I think. Um, and just to talk to someone who, like to see how Kai has had to come to grips with this as the son of someone who's learned these things about his dad, like the rest of the world has learned about them. I mean, he, he learned maybe a little bit sooner, but not much sooner about what his dad was really like. And um, it's been a real struggle for him, for sure, to come to terms with all of that and to realize that, you know, his dreams of, of taking over the business are now gone. Um, he's got a father who, you know, has been charged for, for being a, a predator. So yeah, it's a, it's a very, you know, it's a very tough situation. And of course, People also ask Kai, you know, how could you not have known? How could you have not have suspected? And he says he didn't. And, you know, his dad had different parts of himself he shared with different people at different times and that he was shielded from it. Um, but yeah, Kai's been, he's been, you know, brave in telling his story. And he's in a really, really tough spot, obviously, having to go through all this. So Kai's having to go through um, knowing what his father is alleged to have done to all these uh, women and girls, but he's also dealing with um, the allegations that his own brothers have made uh, against their father. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's an, another sad part of the story. There are so many sad parts to it, but um, his, his brothers have come forward to say that um, they were both um, flown to their father at one point, one was in the Bahamas and the other was in Winnipeg, I think where this happened at different points in time. And, um, and the allegation is that Nygaard instructed one of his, his quote unquote girlfriends, what he called girlfriends who really say they were sex slaves um, to make his son's men. And so they were 14 and 15 years old when this happened. Um, it was this, and it's, this happened over a period of 12 or 14 years, these two incidents. And it was the same woman in both incidents where you know she was instructed basically to statutorily rape these two young boys. Um, and Kai has been, been their kind of mentor and helper in terms of helping them come forward and helping them launch their own lawsuit. And, and they will tell you, and I've spoken to one of these young boys, they're men now, um, who said the reason they come forward, and I've seen this play out, they came forward to say, this happened, you know, something bad happened to us too. And we're willing to be public about that. 
And we're doing this because we want to support all the women who've come forward. For anybody who says they're lying, we're adding our voices to say, no, they're not, because we know something like this happened to us too. And, and I know for the young women who've come forward, that was a huge, huge turning point for them to see his own sons come forward and say, we believe you. Um, it was big. It was a big deal for everybody. Absolutely. And um, at the heart of, of your podcast really is the question of how these allegations were kept quiet for so long. And of course, there's no multiple different reasons why you cite. So would you mind um, getting into the ultimate, uh, your ultimate conclusion, or I guess hypothesis? Yeah, I mean, you're right. There are lots of different ways this was kept quiet. I mean, there were you know, in the 70s and 80s in Winnipeg, there was a societal kind of silence around this that he benefited from, I think. Um, and, you know, and he benefited also by by being friendly with politicians and powerful people in Winnipeg and people saw him as a powerful person and it's hard to go up against powerful people. So that was true in Winnipeg as much as it was true in the Bahamas later in, in time when he was, you know, had powerful friends and he and uh, people were paid. Um, to, to support him. So he got power and silence, I think, through that. Um, and he also got it by attacking anybody who went up against him. So anytime a former employee would come forward or a woman would come forward, he would attack them legally. And he is, um, you know, well known for his, his desire and, and, and uh, uh, you know, ability to play out these lawsuits over many, many, many years. Um, and, and he did that to us. He did that to the CBC because we came, you know, we started investigating him, as you said, in 2009. Our first story came out in 2010. And then he he launched five, four, five or six lawsuits against us. I, I can't keep track of them all. He sued us before we even went to air. Um, he sued the people we were talking to for our research. He sued us after we went to air. He sued us in New York. He sued us in Bahamas. He sued us in Winnipeg. Um, and then he launched a criminal case against us. So we were criminally charged. Um, in Canada, there's something called criminal, criminal, criminal libel. And it's not something that's used very often, um, but it's there. If you have the money and the means to, to use it, you can launch a private criminal prosecution against someone. And that's what he did. He did that against us. Um, so we were facing five years in prison, potentially, if we lost that, that fight. Thankfully, I work for the CBC, who backed us up all the way through this and, and you know paid for the lawyers to fight this fight. And it was a big fight. And the CBC really stepped up and kept us going um, you know, over this decade that we fought legally. And then when we got back into the story more recently to do the podcast, you know, the support continued. And, um, and as the story started to unravel, so did his uh, ability to fight back unraveled. The lawsuits started to fall apart against all of us. And eventually they were all dropped because they were seen to be frivolous. Um, they were, you know, they were based on things that just weren't true. And this started to become obvious and eventually it all fell apart. But that was a big, big part of his, the machine that kept this quiet was his relentless attacks on people who dared to go up against him. I want to stay on the litigation for a moment because I do think it's it's fascinating. And I know sometimes <laughs> journalists don't like when you ask them about themselves and try not to become the story and all that. But but you get served with a claim, not just for civil libel, but for for um, criminal libel. 
Um, how are you feeling in that moment? Because yes, you're lucky to have um, the engine of the CBC, but you're named personally, right? Um, how do you deal with that in that moment? And what was your reaction to getting, I think, served with the criminal, uh, the criminal libel charge? It, um, yeah, it's not fun. I mean, you know, I've been sued a number of times for different stories. And even though, you know, your work is good and you know, you've done your best and you know, you've been solid, that moment it arrives, there's, there's a moment of panic that just naturally humanly happens. And when you add the layer of, of a criminal charge on top of it, it was just, it was a whole foreign kind of concept to me. So yeah, I was, I was wondering what's going to happen. Um, a criminal charge, you know, and it, you know, in, in Canadian courts, you know, the way they operate is it oftentimes comes down to a judge and judges are humans and they make decisions and judges, you know, you present your best case, but really it's in someone else's hands. I mean, regardless of how good your fight is and how well supported you are in the end, it's not up to you or your, you know, to make a decision. So it's in someone else's hands. And that's, you know, that's a little bit scary for sure. But in the end, you just have to take comfort in the fact that you've done your best, that you've done this for good reasons, that you've done this because you believe in the public interest and you believe in, in, in this case, the survivors who, you know, all that they went through and, and, you know, it'll, it'll unravel how it unravels. If you, um, if you think too much about it, you can kind of, you know, it'll, you'll go a bit crazy. So I try not to, when these things happen, I try to put them aside because, uh, you know, there's only so much you can control around these things. And while we're on um, specifically the litigation, can you talk a little bit about the significance of criminal libel versus civil libel? And um, I, I mean, you talked about the consequences, but really mm -hmm. how peculiar criminal libel is in this country? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I can tell you about my experience. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I spend a lot of times with lawyers now um, going through this. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know this existed until this happened to me, but there is this provision in the criminal code um, that allows a private citizen to launch a criminal case against another private citizen for saying something about them they didn't like, basically. And um, I mean, there's a process they have to go through. They have to show that there's at least some evidence that something happened um, and they have to present that to a judge and um, the judge has to say, you know, allow it to go forward. But the bar is really, really, really low is what I realized. Like even like it, that at that point, it's not tested on the evidence. It's just tested on whether there's something maybe could be there. So we didn't get to present our evidence. Like it was a decade in before we even got to start to present our evidence. So, you know, and it was for various reasons. I mean, there was a pandemic near the end that slowed things down. The, his side was was very, they were very slow at handing over what they were supposed to hand over. There was a lot of delays in our case. We launched some appeals that slowed the case down as well. Um, but it is a very strange part of the criminal code that, you know, can be used. I, it's, I mean, we've shown, it's been shown, it can be used to take on journalists who are just doing their jobs. Um, I think it's wrong. I don't think it should exist. There's a league, there is a, a legal argument out there that it's unconstitutional that's been tested in a few provinces. Um, my knowledge is thin on this, so I won't go into a lot of detail, but I know that there's some constitutional questions about whether this is fair and right to have this existing in the criminal code. And, and I hope someday it gets addressed so that nobody else has to, has to go through this and that it can't be used. Like imagine 10 years ago, if he hadn't done that 10 years ago, 
what he did and we were able to kind of keep reporting on the story without this threat hanging over us, maybe this could have been resolved. Like we might've known the truth a lot sooner than we do if, if he hadn't used, that that hadn't been available to him, that big hammer that he used on us. And that's, uh, that's sad. I think maybe it says something about how um, we don't value journalism enough that uh, <laughs> we don't realize that things like this are, and libel chill is a real danger to certain parts of society who rely on journalism and sometimes maybe more than the authorities to uncover certain kinds of bad behavior. But I'll uh, leave that at that. Um, <laughs> obviously, we talked about how he's been using litigation as a tool to cover up this story, both with respect to journalists like yourself and also the whistleblowers. Can you talk about some of the other intimidation tactics that you've faced as well as some of the whistleblowers that you've been uh, in contact with? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, right in the beginning, um, some strange things started to happen as we started to investigate this. So, um, and all I can tell you is that these things happened. Like yeah. I don't have proof about how they happened. I just know that when I started investigating Peter Nygaard within a month, there was a car sitting outside my house for days on end watching my house with someone inside it. Um, I event, you know, I eventually confronted this guy and he, you know, he left, but it, it happened. Um, I know that, I also know that over and over and over again, we would contact people and they would say, you know, the next day they would get a phone call from someone on behalf or working for Peter Nygaard to say, you know, you better not talk to any journalists or would you like to have, would you like a new job? We can give you a job. So it was either threats or intimidation against the people we would contact. And this happened over and over and over to us. And we didn't know, like we couldn't figure out how this could keep happening how someone was clearly very close behind us in our investigation. And we were so careful. We got, I switched computers, I switched cell phones. Like we tried to do everything we could imagine to try and protect our communication. And then one day I was on the phone, I was on a phone call and uh, um, I was put on hold. I was actually talking to one of our lawyers at CBC and he put me on hold for a few minutes and this computerized voice came on the phone and said, do you, you know, press one to keep recording press two to pause your recording. And I was like, I wasn't recording. The guy I was calling wasn't recording. So somebody else was recording our phone calls. Um, and we, you know, to this day, don't know who or how, we just know that it happened. Um, and we know that, you know, at every stage of our investigation, people who were working for Peter Nygaard were one step either behind us or in front of us. So yeah, lots of strange stuff. And then to talk about the whistleblowers, there were these two whistleblowers who came forward in the beginning who really started the ball rolling for our investigation. Um, one of them one night uh, was in, at his house and he heard some banging in the middle of the night and they were slamming on his door. So he came around the back and he had a baseball bat and he's like, just kind of motioned the bat to, to get rid of this guy. And the guy says to him, hey, do you know Peter Nygaard? And he went, whoa, and he went back in his house. I mean, the, the threat was clear. And then the other whistleblower was walking home one night from, uh, from having some drinks and he was attacked and beaten. And at the end of it, the guy said, one of the guys said, Peter says hi. So these are the kinds of things. Again, we don't know how or who was doing these things, but we know they happened as we were investigating Peter Nygaard. 
And it just gives you like chills thinking about it. And I wonder like how you got through that period. And, and you must've been, I mean, af- afraid of what could p- potentially happen to your family or to you personally. And, and so what kind of motivated you to keep going and, um, and keep reporting despite all these, you know, attacks? Mm-hmm. It's, it was the people who would talk to us. I mean, over and over and over again. And really they had a lot more to risk than, than I did because I, you know, I, had, I did have this backing behind me, the CBC. And the CBC is a, it's a big media company that, that really supports its journalists. So I, I, like, I felt like I had that. Um, our, our law department at the time, they, they hired a private investigative firm to, to help us like they were really, really, you know, when we went to that, go to the Bahamas, they hired us and uh, they hired someone to go with us for protection. Like they really took care of us. So yes, these things were happening and they were always kind of in the back of our minds, but I always knew I had protection or felt like I did, but the people we were speaking to didn't have that. And yet over and over and over again, they would choose to speak and choose to take that risk. And that was, you know, it's what kept us going. It's what kept this whole thing going. And in the end, the young women in the Bahamas, when they started to talk to us and the women in Canada who went through these things all these years ago, I mean, this, this was the motivation. It really was. And that's a huge motivating factor for what we do as journalists. Absolutely. When it, you know, when it helps people. And did it also add, you know, um, fuel to the fire in that, you know, if he was working this hard to cover everything up, did it also make, change your opinion of him and, and, and enhance kind of your desire to keep going with the investigation in that sense too? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll say this, like when someone fights back really, really hard, I mean, there's two possibilities to that. They're innocent. So they really want to protect their innocence or the other possibility is they're not. And this is an aggression tactic. Um, so yeah, that wasn't lost on me. The fact that, you know, I'd never experienced anyone fight that hard when we were beginning an investigation and for sure it's a motivating factor. You know, you want to know the truth. It helps. It makes you want to know even more what the truth is when someone tries that hard to shut you up. So for sure it was a motivating factor. Let's transition to talk about some of the ongoing litigation against Nygaard. Um, what kind of legal proceedings civil and criminal is he facing right now? So he's been charged in the US, uh, there's a US indictment, um, no charges in Canada, surprisingly, not yet. There are a number of places investigating him, we know, but not a single charge in Canada. Um, but the United States, um, you know, he was investigated by the FBI as well, and a court in New York charged him. And so he's in prison, um, he's in jail, he's in uh, remand, just outside of Winnipeg, waiting for an extradition hearing. So the U.S. authorities have applied to extradite him to the United States to face the charges that involve um, sex trafficking, sexual assault, rape, um, racketeering, which is using your company to commit crimes. Um, so all of these charges have been laid. It's all been made public. There's been, you know, there's been hearings about it. There's there's an indictment that's public, and uh, some big charges. Yeah. So he's he's you know he's maintaining his innocence says this, these things aren't true and that it didn't happen. He's tried to apply for bail on a couple of occasions and he's lost. He, he tried twice and lost both times. So he is in jail waiting for uh, his extradition hearing, which I think happens in November. Um, so it's still gonna be a number of months before that happens. And then presumably there'll be a decision at some point and he'll either go be sent to the US to face his charges 
or not. That'll be up to the, you know, the extradition judge. Um, that's the situation in Canada. Can we talk a little bit about the racketeering? I don't know if we've talked about this yet, um, about, because Liv mentioned the being like, there's a, there's a real corporate corruption angle to this as well. Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about, I think this is from, this is from the SDNY um, charges, uh, how he used his company to commit these crimes. For sure. Alleged crimes. Yeah. Um, in, in, the, in our final episode in Evil by Design, talks about this too, the, the enablers, we call it. So these are the people around him who were part of his company, um, who he used or he's accused of using to commit his crimes. So it's everything from uh, the people in the travel department who had arranged for women to be brought to him or, or you know, brought somewhere else, all the way up to senior executives who are accused of uh, uh, you know, paying people off who were making allegations against him. They're accused of, uh, of you know, hiring lawyers and being involved in lawsuits to silence people. Um, yeah, I mean, there was, there was the accusation is there was a big corporate machine that he created that helped him commit these crimes um, you know, over all these years and that he didn't do this alone. There, there was a machine around him that was his company. And of course, his company was a clothing company. So there was this, this idea that you could become a model with his company. So that was a big part of the, the kind of thing that was dangled out there was that they were looking for models. So there were people in his company who were quote unquote, looking for models who would be, you know, then brought into his orbit. And, and that's where these kind of assaults were, were happening. I know it's weird to quote people back to them, but I do think it's perfect. Uh, in the last episode, you say uh, predators require the help of some and the quiet complacency of others. And you mentioned um, some of these enablers. Do you think that <laughs> do you think that they're getting enough, I guess, heat for this? I mean, Peter Nygaard is the focus, but but what about all these other people who have either hel actively helped? or sat by and watched this happen. I'm thinking, and these aren't perfect stories, but I'm thinking of like Sula Medeiros, I'm thinking of uh, Angela Dyborn, um, who was Nygaard's niece. What do you think about uh, these people? <laughs> Have we been talking about them enough? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that if you look at the US indictment, I mean, the words, you know, known and unknown co-conspirators is all over the indictment. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say that this hasn't been lost on the US authorities that they're keyed into the fact that he didn't do this alone. Um, if we look at the, you know, the Jeffrey Epstein prosecution, I mean, his, his chief enabler, accused chief enabler, Yilan Maxwell is right now in, in jail, in prison. So if that's, if that's the template, then you definitely have to wonder whether the US authorities are going down that road. Is that the next kind of shoe to drop? Um, we don't know. I mean, we know what they, they're accused of. We know these accusations are in the, it's in the indictment. We know there's similar accusations in the civil case that's been filed against Peter Nygaard. So the accusations are there. They've been made public. We know who some of these people are, as you just, you just described. So what's going to happen to them next? I mean, we have to wait and see. In terms of, you mentioned this, um, the, the lack of Canadian charges, um, we saw that you retweeted a story uh, by APTN uh, just a week ago that the alleged victim of Peter Nygaard, who is an Indigenous uh, woman and live in Canada and lives in in Canada, said that um, she feels that the police complaints are being under investigated and 
she's concerned that the Canadian authorities are not um, looking at the allegations as with as much interest as the law enforcement in the States. So I'm, I'm curious about what you think um, about the delay of the Canadian charges. It, to me, it's the big elephant. Like, where are the Canadian authorities in all of this? I mean, of course, there's a process, you know, they have their own investigative processes that they have to, they have to use. We don't know the details. We don't know what challenges they have. Um, and what they're dealing with, but we know that the American authorities have been able to overcome the challenges and press charges. So we know, you know, we know the charges are possible, I guess, based on what the Americans have done. So why it's taken this long for, you know, any kind of conclusion on the Canadian side of things, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, even for them to say, you know, we're finished, you know, we've investigated and we've decided nothing's going to happen, I think would be some, it would be, wouldn't be probably a happy day for the survivors, but it'd be some kind of closure. Because I know I've spoken to a number of survivors who have made complaints to Canadian authorities, and they're just wondering and waiting what's going to happen. And they don't know. They don't know. But we know there's an investigation in Winnipeg. We know there's an investigation in Toronto, possibly Vancouver as well. I couldn't say for sure. Uh, but we know Winnipeg and Toronto for sure. We know these things, these investigations have been going on for months and months and months. You know, these are complicated cases for sure. Uh, they, you know, they involve allegations from, in some cases, a long time ago, which adds to the complication. But we know that the American authorities managed to get it done, get the job done. So I think the, a fair question that survivors in Canada are asking is, you know, where, where are our, where's our accountability here in Canada, one way or the other? Let's have some kind of resolution in Canada, and it's just not there yet. As, um, you know, fellow podcasters, I'm curious, you know, you, you had the documentary, the fifth estate documentary, but what motivated you specifically to put, put this story in a podcast? Um, cause I think, I mean, I, I also am curious about the title because I think it's such a great title. Um, and, and kind of how that came about. Mm -hmm. I can take no credit for the title cause I didn't come up with it, but the producer on the series, Ashley Mack, uh, created the title. And I think it's, a fantastic title. It really says so much about what the series is about. Um, in terms of the, you know, why put this, make this into a podcast? I mean, there's, it's such an incredible medium for complicated storytelling, right? So there's just no better way to tell a story, I think, that's played out over a long period of time that has lots of twists and turns than a podcast. Because um, we did do an hour-long documentary as well, um, which is my main job is, is producing documentaries, TV documentaries. Um, but, you know, compared to what we were able to tell in the podcast, the documentary, the TV piece is like a teaser almost, because you really just the depth and, and you can get into and also like the podcast let us get into things like, you know, the, the culture and the Bahamas and, and um, just the really the behind the scenes kind of stuff that you just can't fit normally in, in sort of typical media coverage that I think is just gives that a really rich kind of context to a story that you often miss out in. And that, to me, that's so what's so wonderful about podcasting. So I'm a huge convert now um, to podcasts. <laughs> and, you know, obviously you guys are too, because you're making one. <laughs> I think the medium really lends itself to, this has been said a lot of times, but there is a feeling of intimacy when like someone's in your ear talking to you, it kind of feels like you could be on a phone call. And I think hearing these powerful stories from these survivors and from your sources, through a podcast, um, I think it's maybe a little bit even more powerful than 
than on film sometimes because well especially because sometimes they're they're blacked out and that's always a little bit strange but but there's an intimacy and there's a, there's a real it becomes a little bit more jarring i find when i when you hear stories like that over a podcast um, that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I have to ask you about, um, I know we're talking here to talk about the podcast, but I have to talk to you about the footage um, and Stephen Fraley's videos. He was also uh, interviewed for the podcast. I just, can you believe that Nygaard wanted to document all that and why? It's the strangest part of the story to me. I need to get your reaction on this video. And maybe if you could tell the listeners a little bit about what it is. Sure. So Stephen Fraulia was hired a number of years ago, I think it was in 2004 when he first joined the company um, to document on video everything. And he was just, his instructions were, he says, were to film everything until Peter Nygaard, he says, gave him this kind of, you know, across the throat kind of gesture, which meant stop the camera. But aside from that, he was told to document everything. You know, and, and and anyways, he so he came forward to us and shared this footage with us. And he had like thousands of hours of footage. Like I watched, you know, I didn't watch thousands, but I watched, you know, lots and lots and lots of footage to kind of see. And we see things like um, we see Peter Nygaard in um, the Olympic Village in in London approaching a 16 year old athlete and, and trying to get her phone number. And, and just the interaction, like you, you have to see it to kind of know what we're talking about, but you, it just kind of says it all mm-hmm. when you see this play out, when you, know, when you now know what he's been accused of, and then you see this scene play out, there's, it's just, it's powerful, you know, right? Um, or we even just, even small things, like when he's coming into a hotel room and he's got his entourage of young women with him and he's, he can't keep track of how many are with them. Like, I thought there was six and why is there only five and you're gonna sleep there and I'm gonna, and it just, it really, really uh, hits home what, you know, what the allegations, it, it really paints a picture that you can only get by seeing it happen. You know, and why Peter Nygaard did this? I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. He, you know, I've heard stories about how he really likes to see himself on television, how that would calm him down I've heard stories where, because he's notoriously has a bad temper and would yell and scream. And one of the tactics someone told me is they would put on a video of himself um, and that would calm him down. He would be less angry if he got to see himself with famous people or on his boats or whatever. And so, I mean, you know, he liked, he liked to document what he was doing. I guess one of the quotes he said to Stephen Ferralio, he said is the reason Jesus was so popular was because he had a good PR team. And that's who you are. You're going to be my PR team, and you're going to make me look good, and you're going to like me, make me look famous and important. And this was something that he valued. And but we now know it backfired. And and people, you know, in the media do note the similarities between him and Jeffrey Epstein and other um, kind of like horrific um, men who are alleged to have committed, you know, horrible crimes. And I'm just, you know, curious as someone who's spent time with the story for so long, um, you know, what do you think needs to be done um, moving forward um, to stop these, these men or expose them earlier? Or um, is is there anything that can be done? Do we have big problems that we have to face in our own society first? (laughs) I mean, 
I think the good news is it's happening. Like it's happening in ways it's never happened before. You know, do we have more to do? Will more, absolutely. I'm sure more can and will be done. But just the fact that I think back to 10 years ago when I proposed this story, I guess 12 years ago. And I, and I, you know, and I know how people reacted when I was proposing it. And it was, there was this kind of, well, you know, he's, you know, he, he's on, he can do what he wants on his own time. Like I would hear these kinds of comments and, and, and you don't hear that, or you hear less of that now, at least in the business that I'm in, you know, the New York times and, and the stories about, um, you know, all the, the people, the men, the powerful men and the things that they've done, there's, um, there's an appetite among decision makers in big media companies to tell these stories like there never were before. And I think that's huge. I think that's had a huge impact. And I think it's helped people feel better. You know, it's made it easier for people to come forward when they see other people doing the same thing, when they see it being taken seriously by places like the New York Times and the CBC, that it creates an environment where we can talk about these things. And I think people are, are you know, will be, it'll be harder to get away with this kind of behavior. Will it stop it? I'm sure not but um, hopefully we'll get there. Hopefully we'll get there. Well, we love the podcast. We thought it was excellent. Um, of course, as an investigative journalist, your work is sometimes shrouded in secrecy, but is there anything else we can look forward to um, from you, Timothy Sawa, coming up? On this story in particular? This story or any story, plug what you want to plug. <laughs> um, we are working on a story, another story about... Um, it's about a school and a religious group that's been described as a cult and um, a church, a major Canadian church. Um, so I think that's, um, I think that's very vague. Yeah, I know it's a bit <laughs> vague. It's new. I'm just, I'm just getting into it. So that's a, that's a project I'm working on right now. On the Peter Nygaard story, I think it's, I think we're just going to watch the court process play out. I think that's going to be the next part of the story. Uh, the, the media have teamed up and applied to get cameras into the hearing. So, um, right, that, you know, they're generally not allowed in courts in Canada. Mm -hmm. We're hoping, probably, it's probably a low hope, but we will, so hopefully we can, no matter what, when this hearing happens in November, the extradition hearing, there's gonna be a lot of coverage around that and we're gonna learn even more. So we'll look forward to that as well. And we really can't say enough good things about um, Evil by Design. It was a fantastic podcast and we really encourage everybody to go listen to there. It's eight parts. And, and to be honest, you're going to absolutely binge it. It is so good. Um, and so where else can people find you on, on Twitter and anywhere else? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm well on Twitter, obviously our podcast is on Apple podcasts and everywhere else you can find podcasts. We have the CBC Listen app, which has it as well. Um, our TV documentaries are on YouTube, the Fifth Estate TV documentary, so you can find that there. Um, yeah, and I can always be reached on Twitter for sure, at Timothy Sawa. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming. You were an amazing, um, you're an, an expert in the subject and we feel so lucky to have, have been able to talk to you uh, on this topic. And, and hopefully we'll have you back to talk about your uh, vague <laughs> uh, <laughs> next story. All right, well, I really appreciate this. I appreciate that you guys, you know, like the podcast and, and uh, we're listening and are encouraging others to listen. It's an important story. So I'm glad it's getting told. It certainly is. Thank you very much, Timothy Sawa. Thanks and see you next week.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.